ready to go here. The first slide is sort of a what we finished on last time. And I won't spend a lot of time on this, but I want to reiterate this. It's amazing the insight that one gets studying Luke X as the two-volume work it obviously is. It's pretty amazing to me that for centuries and centuries of church history, people overlooked that Luke X is not only a two-volume work, but how Luke wrote this, where things are started in Luke that are completed at the end of Acts, and these themes carry over. And I thank God for Dr. Tannehill's book, The Narrative Unity of Luke X, that I found when I was in seminary. has been revolutionary for me in preaching through Luke X. So now in Acts, last time, a few weeks ago, I pointed something out that an astute reader would see. I didn't see it, but somebody else did. And that's this. Luke is laid out so that you have this long travel narrative. That's not a new idea. People have seen that for many, many years. That starting in Luke 9.51, everything in Luke is headed toward Jerusalem. Okay? Jesus said, I must, must, day, which is a term Luke uses for a divine necessity. And it's very clear. Remember, we were looking at the Mount of Transfiguration. It was, he was talking there with Moses and Elijah about his exodus, his departure. He's going to Jerusalem to be rejected. To be rejected, killed, rejected by the Jewish leadership. And Luke Acts makes it very clear that this is God's purpose. Very, very clear. And I hope we understand that. Without that understanding, we're missing Luke's point in Luke Acts. It's God's purpose that Messiah would be rejected by his own people. But yet, the fact that they did is still morally culpable. Okay? That God allows evil and that God rules history doesn't change the reality that there's a certain ontological status to evil that is what it is, to use a redundancy, and that God uses things doesn't mean that those who did it are righteous or vindicated. In other words, at the final judgment, the people who never came to Christ and who shouted, crucify him, crucify him, we have no king but Caesar, and then later never repented of it, are not going to be able to go to the judgment seat of God and say, well, you can't judge us because you used what we did. That's so clear. Now, that's important. I'm saying it here because it's also important in Ephesians. We've got to allow what God says to weigh on our hearts and minds. 
trying to explain that to my grandson when I brought him back after grad he graduated from college. And I explained this to him, a Christian worldview, because he's, as college students, they get all upset about all the injustice in the world is all these people with money. They're, you know, all, you, you know how they get fed this stuff. And I was explaining how God draws out the boundaries of the nations and that God's sovereign over history. And that Genesis very accurately describes what we see in the real world. There really is evidence that humans are created in God's image. Sometimes even non-Christians do objective good to one another and to other people. Sometimes they engage in selfless service. Sometimes they start hospitals and help sick people or put their lives on the line as so many people did in World War II, valiantly defending their country from attack. And then sometimes the same kind of people, creating God's image, do really evil, weird, crazy Bizarre things like, did you see somebody took a car, a lady took a car, ran down an old man? She was trying to run over kids. He was trying to save the kids. 51-year-old lady. Diana was telling me this morning she saw it again in the news. Why is it like this? Why is it like that? Why, Why do we see this? If you read Genesis, it's all right there. As I said to my grandson, well, why did Cain kill Abel? This is explaining human evil. Was it that Abel deserved it? No. Cain is a fallen evil sinner, and even to him, what did God say to him? Sin is crouching at the door. I hope I'm getting this right. It's coming out of my memory. But it's desires for you, but you must overcome. Well, he didn't. He killed Abel. Now we look for a cause. Oh, there's there's got to be some cause, you know, we, if we do social engineering, then that'll never happen again. Well, what social engineering could have been done to save Abel? This happened because of sin. Humans are like that. But the real issue is that we need a savior. And that what's going on in Luke Acts is that God has chosen to use a crucified Jewish Messiah who would be rejected in Jerusalem by his own people, even though the evidence pointed that he really is the son of David. He really is the Messiah. And he's more than the son of David. He's the very creator himself, according to John. But they rejected him and hated him, which was prophesied. So Jesus is on, from Luke 9.51 all the way to Jerusalem, is on a mission to die for sins and to be rejected. Now there's a parallel that happens in Acts. This blows my mind. Because I'll be showing you this as we go through Acts. The Holy Spirit is telling us that this all didn't die when Jesus was rejected. In other words... God is working through the apostles to carry on what Jesus' mission was. He was commissioned by them, 
and these miracles that God does, and I do believe they're unique to the apostles. We'll see that when we get into it. But there's also a parallel thing with Paul. So here's a journey to Jerusalem to be rejected. The church had a hard time accepting what Jesus was saying. This is really becoming clear now as I'm studying Acts. Even the apostles really couldn't get it, which is clear in Luke X. They had a hard time. They eventually did by the very acts of God, but they had a hard time with it. Why? Because they still wanted Jerusalem to be the headquarters, the world headquarters for Christianity. That's what they wanted. And so what we're going to see is that as the gospel went to new people groups, the apostles are still in Jerusalem, even though there's persecution. I preached on this last week out of Acts 8 as an application. They had to send emissaries to see if God really did what the report said he did. Peter and John went to Samaria. So other people besides the apostles are the initial ones are going elsewhere with the gospel. They're still back in Jerusalem despite the persecution because they still are thinking we're going to be able to have world Christianity headquartered in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's got to be the place. It's not going to be that way. We don't know that it's not going to be that way till 70 AD, which I believe happened after Acts and after Hebrews was written. So now, just to show us that, Paul himself is going on a journey to Jerusalem to be rejected. Now, Paul can't, isn't going to die for anybody's sins, but it shows that when Jesus lamented over Jerusalem, who rejects the prophets and won't listen to whoever God sent to them, is still going on, and they're going to reject Paul. And even the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem are going to reject him. James had to warn him. These people are not going to accept you. And Paul went to extremes to try to forestall that. Remember, he took a vow and put himself under an oath and did all this stuff that you normally wouldn't do as a Christian. And he did it to, to see if he could bring peace to the church in Jerusalem. And what happened? They had a riot. Who started it? Christians. Read it. Just read Luke Acts. And the whole thing had to blow up so that they could finally decide Jerusalem's not going to be the headquarters of the church. They couldn't believe it. But that's exactly what happened. And then we know from history in 135, there was yet a greater destruction of Jerusalem. And so Jesus wants the message to go to all of the world, to all of the people groups, to everybody, wherever they may be, the gospel needs to be spread. And it took a bunch of miracles for the apostles themselves to realize that was exactly what was going on, even though they've been told. Literally, it took miracles for them to realize it. Now, what we're going to see is how Antioch becomes the de facto headquarters of the new mission, not Jerusalem. It's going to really be Antioch. Antioch was the important city in the Roman Empire. 
Now then in Acts 11:18, when they heard this, remember they had to be convinced in Jerusalem that God granted salvation to Gentiles. When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, which we need to do, saying, well, then God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Granted is didomi, which is the word for to give. It's in the aorist active indicative, meaning God did it at a point in time. And so repentance was granted to Gentiles. And as I was just saying, this doesn't get resolved right away. It goes on and on in Acts. In Acts 15, they finally had a council to try to solve it. Are we going to force the Gentile Christians to keep the law of Moses or not? What was the answer? No, No, not. Not. They don't have to. And God used people that were very much associated with Jewish Messianic faith, like James, to speak to deal with this so that there would be credibility to it. James ends up with a pretty important role in saying this. Now, I I point out on my slide, we're always to give glory to God when he saves. Whatever else may be debated about Ordo Salutis, I mentioned that last week in my sermon, let's all agree that God gets the glory. If we're half honest... And just other than people that were converted at a really young age, people that were converted realize God did it. I mean, I was as angry. I I didn't have the status that Saul of Tarsus did, obviously. I was just an angry farm kid from Iowa. But I was so irate when my fiancé became a Christian. I was just just angry and blasphemous and I had it I was 21 actually I was 20 years old about to turn 21 before the end of the year and I said that's it I've had enough of this I'm not going to listen to this nonsense you got one more chance to tell me why you're doing this and I'm out of here her dad Diane's dad was in the house he was my friend he was my hunting buddy and her, he had come to the Lord. I didn't know it. And her brother had. And she they said, here these. And, and she said, I don't know anything. I never read the Bible. She had, a, she had to go in and get a Bible. I don't know anything about all this. But they took me to this conference. And they said, the rivers are going to turn to blood. Now, there's a good scheme <laughs> to convince a skeptical science student the river's going to turn to blood. What? That's crazy. I at least went to Sunday school, which is something she hadn't done. I don't believe it. So she said, I don't know anything about the Bible. Now, this was God's miracle that I didn't deserve. She said, I have no idea. She opened the Bible, literally no bookmarkers. It fell open to the page. Oh, here it is. And she handed it to me. <laughs> that was a miracle. That happened a couple times on something else. And I knew it. I knew that God was real. I knew the gospel was true. I knew I was going to hell. 
And I knew that if I didn't repent, I deserved it. And if I carried out on my plan to call off the engagement and wait to turn 21 and go to the bar, uh, it would be horrible. And I repented right there, then and there. Now, am I going to claim credit for that? No, God didn't give me what I deserved. He showed mercy to a wicked sinner that didn't deserve it. When Paul later says that he's a chief of sinners, he wasn't being hyperbolic. He was telling cold, sober truth because he was one of the most angry, hateful, spiteful people that wanted Christians dead. Brian Beers. <clears throat> the uh, God granted to the Gentiles uh, the uh, repentance that leads to life. The Jews in that day, that was a real issue uh, for them prior to this in Acts. That was a real, uh, they had a hard time with that. And I, I don't know if Paul mentioned it, but it wasn't it uh, somewhere in Isaiah, it was prophesied that this would happen. But it seems like from here, you keep seeing the uh, Jews, they, they keep uh, n- not believing what Jesus is telling them. Right. And then on top they of didn't believe the prophecy, they didn't believe the prophecy, they didn't believe. Yeah, Eric, look at, I think, isn't it Isaiah 42, 7? Okay, go ahead. Says, I will give you a covenant for the people, light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring the prisoners from the dungeon. And this, this is the idea that he's going to go to the Gentile nations, that it wasn't sufficient for him just to go to Israel. Um, let's see here. I'll try to find it. Isaiah 42. I think it's 42, 7. Or is it 43? Maybe I got Yeah, here's his Lord's chosen servant. He's going to bring justice through the whole earth. That's Isaiah 42, 3 through 4. Then when you see um, he's going to bring the captives, liberty, and Isaiah 42 later. And then Isaiah 49, you're right, that's there again. I'll turn to that. I may have got the wrong verse. Saying to the prisoners, come out here. It's a covenant to the people, the portion 49.6. Where's the one that says it's too small of a thing that I give you? 49.6. Yeah, there it is. I will, I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends there of the earth. 49.6. Yeah. So Isaiah 42 through 49 is him reaching out to the, the whole area of 49, 6. Well, at least I got the book right. <laughs> and it was in the 40s. I was sort of, what do you do without a computer concordance? Anyhow, this is prophesied, but when it happened, it shocked everybody because it just wasn't their ordinary way of thinking. Obviously, the Gentiles are going to find messianic salvation uh, which of the Jewish rabbis would say well we read the scriptures and what we know is that we're going to reject our own Messiah but the Gentiles will receive him did anybody say that no they didn't say that they didn't believe it's in the Bible but they didn't believe it yes I turn on the microphone here yeah I just with a little humor here and this is really making this abundantly clear it doesn't say that the, that the early Christian who were Jewish, that they adopted a marketing plan to bring this to the Gentiles. Yes. And it also doesn't say that a bunch of Gentiles heard the news, and so they all came to Jerusalem to say, we want to get in on this. In other words, there was no initiative on either side. It was all God 
that did this. Yeah, it was the initiative of God. God granted repentance. Now, we're going to see that as we go forward here. The whole idea of adopting a marketing plan is not here. God builds his church. These marketing plans have destroyed more churches. It's crazy. Because the only way your marketing plan works is if you abandon the gospel. Because the gospel has one thing that's true. It offends everybody. So I can't still get emails from people about Rick Warren and the book I wrote about him. Well, the whole thing's so stupid. The marketing plan we know is really a bad idea. And and I've been, somebody was saying, well, what about does Rick Warren have false doctrine? And my my latest answer is, well, I don't know that you can say that because they have false doctrine. You have to have a doctrine. He doesn't have any doctrine. He has a sales plan for his program. He's willing to stick true doctrine deep in his website in order to scare away the conservatives that would be his critics. And he's willing to tell anybody whatever they want to hear. But he's not committed to anything but being successful and turning the world into a Christianized three-legged stool. It's crass. It's shallow. It's worthless. It's better to have some doctrine and stick to it, if you can prove it from the Bible, and defend it and preach it than to have a marketing plan for the people so they don't have to repent to be Christians. So we should give God the glory. Let's go to the next slide. Oops, did I get that right? Yes. Acts eleven nineteen and 20. So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. That becomes a key place. Speaking the word to no one except the Jews alone. Here again is evidence they weren't thinking the Gentiles, but God was. It's really comforting to me to think that God can get me to the right place at the right time, despite me. Okay. But they but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks and preaching the Lord Jesus. So persecution spread the church. Antioch becomes a key center in the Roman Empire. And I have some notes here that I jotted down and highlighted as I was uh, preparing for this. But the fact is that this is going to be a key place in the Roman Empire where Pax Romana, have you heard that term? Roman peace? God is in charge of history. We're learning that in Ephesians. And that this all happened when it did made it possible for this message to quickly spread all over the known world because of travel, 
because of a common language that people could understand and that people would go from one place to another or get on a ship and go here and go there. Antioch turns out to be on a river, which is about as far as one of their ships could get to. So this is going to be very important in church history and how the gospel spreads in Acts. We have a similar opportunity today. I was thinking of an application of this. It just keeps amazing me how many people come to Christ through some of the articles that I published 20 years ago. The internet is our new Pax Romana. We don't have to go all over because the, the word of God goes all over. And uh, I hear from people who came to Christ in different countries through reading an article and then they email me and I start interacting and it turns out that many are really not Christians and then become converted. And their concern is demons and curses. And I tell them you'll never get free without coming to Christ otherwise you're under darkness no matter what. Well, I already accepted Christ. Well, I said then you're blessed. No, I'm not looking at the symptoms. This symptom, that symptom, and the other symptom. And I say, well, this isn't symptomatic, it's relational. Some true Christians are suffering a lot, and some non-Christians are happy. Somebody challenged that, but I think I adequately defended that idea. Does anybody here know non-Christians that have money or are healthy and relatively happy? We all do. It's almost a curse because it makes you not want Christ. What do I need Christ? But they're not going to be in eternity happy. And recently one person got so, it was just so horrible what was happening, especially in this false church. She finally just said, I, I can't sleep. And started listening to sermons online, um, including ours on Ephesians. And she, she came to Christ. And the gospel is saying that Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust to bring us to God. What is promised is the forgiveness of sins. And we're transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. It's absolutely true. Knowing that I'm in the kingdom of his beloved son, I don't start a self-analysis for symptoms because I know I'm blessed anyhow. I do my best with what's here in life like we all try to do. So they go about, because of this Pax Romana, we have the ability to travel, which wasn't always the case. And they were thinking they were going to preach Jew, to Jews, but God is using other peoples. Now, the term scattered here in the Greek is uh, diaspero, diaspero, which I think, at least ironically, is based on the word for scattering seed, the seed. And dia means to go through. And... Uh, here it means to sow or scatter, like the sower would throw, sow the seed, and diaspero, and they were scattered because 
of persecution. And the irony, I love irony. I think we all probably do. This is great irony because this had to do with Stephen. Who was it that was most viciously attacking holding coats for the stoners and then taking off on an onslaught against Christ was Saul of Tarsus. And here's the irony. When he hated Christ, he was causing the seed to be scattered. And when he came to Christ, he went out and planted a seed. One way or the other, God used Saul, whether in a really bad way, or then later, it was obviously a good way. As I'm preaching through Ephesians, please know this, that God's in charge of his own universe is obviously what Paul is teaching us. But in order to understand this and not be troubled or upset, we have to realize that we distinguish between God's providential will and his moral will. We always have to be able to do that. If you can't do that, you're not going to understand the Bible or Christian theology. And I'm going to tell you about it with using Saul as an example right now. Was it morally acceptable for Saul to hate Christ? No. Was it morally acceptable that he wanted people killed for the sin of believing in the Messiah that God promised? It's moral evil. It's moral evil. Do you get that? Did God use it? Yes. Because God used it, is it no longer moral evil? No, it's still moral evil. I was explaining this to my grandson. Yes. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll explain it again. Somebody said I didn't get that. In the course of governing the universe, God is u- governing a universe that has evil in it. But God has spoken once for all so that we know what is good and what is evil from the Bible. And so that being the case, now Eric preached this when he went through Romans 9, 10, and 11. And I'm going to hopefully bring some of that back in Ephesians and lay it out so we get it. We have to be able to see the difference. Because we can't say to God, you used my evil, so now therefore you can't judge me. That defense will not work. Why? Because evil is evil, and we have the capability of knowing it. We were talking, remember Cain killed Abel. But it was still moral evil. And God said, don't listen to this sin, but he did it. Why was he so angry? Because he didn't like the fact that God decided who's offering to accept. So, Saul is doing moral evil by trying to kill Christians. But that is what caused... It's red on mine. I guess I didn't get that one straightened out. Scattered, I want to emphasize, 
diaspora, or we get the word diaspora, was partially called, caused by Saul doing evil. But it spread the gospel around. Then Saul is converted, and now he's intentionally doing good in the name of Christ. But God was using Saul both times. As Christians, we want to be able to identify what the moral good is and by God's grace do it. And that God is in charge of his own universe and that all things are under his providential rule doesn't excuse us for failing to distinguish between good and evil. The reason that came up in my debate with my grandson is that He's he's talking about Israel and all the battles. and Israel does evil things. Israel does evil things. See, that's that's how you know you've been listening to liberal teachers. It's not right. It's not right. And I said, well, let me tell you a biblical worldview. God draws out the boundaries of nations. Acts 17, Deuteronomy Go back to uh, actually Genesis, Genesis after the flood, so that there are nations with boundaries is God's idea. But there isn't a single nation that ended up with boundaries without some evil being done somewhere. People do some evil and they have a battle and people die and all these terrible things happen. And when finally, okay, we got a boundary. And it's God's mercy. I, I told him this too that we're under civil rulers, even though they're evil. Because it would be worse if we were under the demons. Mm-hmm. I'm going to explain this as I go through uh, Ephesians. I know that when we get, but if we really hear Ephesians, we'll get this. Having evil rulers is God's mercy, because otherwise we'd have the actual demons doing what they did back before the flood. And in Daniel's 70th week, what does God do? He lets them out. He says, okay, you don't like how I do it with the civil rulers and drawing out boundaries? Here, <laughs> have Antichrist and the demons, and now you get to see them and tangibly interact with them. Yeah, you don't want what you think. The you idol will even speak. What happens? Hell. All right. So we need to be able to think biblically and have a biblical worldview. That there are certain rulers who do things that are good and evil as part of how God runs his universe. But it's our moral duty to be able to know what the Bible says about what is good and what is evil and live our life accordingly by his grace. Yes, to Helen back there, yes. All the way back. And then I'll get to you, Brian. I'm going to so in other words, are you saying God is allowing evil to be around us in the present day? Yes. God allows evil. Very good question. God allows evil for a time, not forever, so that in this present day, these boundaries actually help us having stable civil situation for the gospel to go all around. We're better off with stable civil civil governments. And whenever that breaks down, what happens 
It's just utter chaos. And it gets so bad that it's difficult for even missionaries to get into places. So it's better to have boundaries and civil rulers so the gospel can go all over. That's his mercy. So what makes people angry that listen to these liberal professors is that we don't have paradise. They believe in the Hegelian synthesis. And so everything's evolving into paradise. So I got Brian and then we'll go to Eric. So they look around and say, see, no paradise, no paradise. Here's some evil, here's some evil. This is horrible. We got to have a revolution, have the government take everything, and then we'll have good. It's so stupid, but that's what they believe. Brian and then Eric. Uh, the, the, the word <laughs> scattered... The word scattered and the uh, diaspora, is that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, later on, when the Jews are scattered throughout the whole world, I like your analogy to seed because that's exactly what happened is those Jews multiplied and then at a later time were all brought back to Israel. This is God's plan going forward. Yes, Eric the Younger. Uh, yeah, so I was thinking on um, some of this, all this temptation and all like how the leaders, they can go corrupt and all. I know I was trying to think through like how, you know, not to get too deep into it, but how it's like Satan is involved in all that. And I think it starts back in actually Cain, as you, you explained it one time. You said it's, it's actually described like there's door demons that are crouching to get in. And it's, you know, it's, it's not a real descriptive sentence, but it's like, I've been seeing this. That's why we pray for the leaders. It's like they're they're constantly they're being attacked because Satan wants to, you know, yeah. take over them too. And I think you know that we don't understand, but it's like thoughts that come into our minds, like evil thoughts are intense. And I've seen this myself even just tonight. I had like a, a really just a really tempting dream that just is there's too much temptation sometimes to just be my own well that's why but, the lord's prayer says lead us down to temptation right and deliver us from the evil one and i think it's also seen like in peter when he says get behind me satan i think the enemy is actually the one yeah a lot of times pouring these thoughts and we don't see that but it's like let me let me explain yeah. that and then bring the mic over to Luann while i'm doing that if i can do this through ephesians I thank God that I'm healthy enough now to do this, and I got my voice back. We've got to see how merciful God is that we actually have human rulers. You know, now and then in the Old Testament, the curtain gets drawn back, so somebody like Daniel, or there's actually a prince of Persia and Michael. Most of the time, we don't know that. And we can't deal with it. If we, we know that it exists, but if we personally are going to interact with the spirits, they win and we lose. Okay? Because we can't even see them. And we don't know what we're doing. And we're fishing around. We don't know what's going on. We can see a human leader, and we can hear what he says, and we can make decisions about what's good and what's evil based on the Bible. What the spirits are doing, that's a different realm. So when it says, Eric, in Ephesians, for example, we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies, that doesn't mean that right now we know what's going on and we can, there's like a taxonomy of the de- demons. There isn't. And I'll, talk, I'll be talking about that in Ephesians. This is for us to believe that we're better off being in Christ and let him be in charge of it. All right? 
because that's beyond us right now. It'll be different later, but it isn't now. Now we have real human leaders, real national boundaries, real sets of laws that to some degree may be good or bad, and real Bible that can tell us what to believe and what not to believe, and we've got to stay on that level. And the Christians are saying, I rebuke you, spirit so-and-so that's over the United States. They don't know what they're talking about because they can't know that. And it's, it's so stupid because the, the spirit realm would be, oh, great, do that. At least then you're not thinking about Christ. Uh, Luann, and then I see Eric over here. Yes, Luann. Okay, and I think this is still on topic because you're talking about his moral will, which is his revealed will from Scripture that's given to us, and we can know that. So can you give me or remind me the difference between inspiration versus like the dictation theory? Okay, how did we get the Scripture? Yeah, that's a good point. The Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. He used real people writing in real languages that were ordained by God. And what they write is the very word of God. And Luke, for example, uses very brilliant Greek language. And it's pretty amazing what Luke does in Luke Acts. I got Eric over here next. And then uh, Hebrews is so brilliant. It's just unbelievable brilliant Greek, but it's not dictation. It's not like automatic writing. Okay, these people actually saw Christ and or were associated with those who did. And when Paul said, for example, when he had a thorn in the flesh and he asked for it to be removed, he remembered what the Lord had said. He had said, my grace is sufficient for thee. Paul Talk to Jesus face to face. And that's why he knew. Okay, so they had what we don't have, which was real tangible teaching from God the Son. Moses saw Yahweh face to face. And then the prophets, I'll be talking about that in Ephesians when I use Daniel for an illustration of how the prophets likely worked in the Old Testament. But it's not subjective. It's objective. Okay, Eric. Yeah, just to tag onto that, you know, the dictation theory, one of the proofs against that, Luann, is the fact that when you look at the New Testament, for example, you see so many different styles of writing. So God so superintends the process of inspiration rather than dictation that you can see that the writer of Hebrews has a different style than Luke. Luke has a different style than Paul. But God so superintends the process when he inspires them that we have what's called the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. Verbal meaning every word, plenary meaning the whole. So every word is exactly the word that the Holy Spirit desires, but he so superintends the process that he uses the the writer, the biblical writer and his personality to bring that forth. So it's actually even more miraculous than the dictation yeah. theory, if you think about it. But I just want to pick up on this scattered idea, Bob. I love this. Um, it made me think of a connection in the Bible where in Mark 4, Jesus is giving the parable of the seed that's being scattered. And what Jesus says is that they, if you don't understand that parable, you won't understand any other parable. Now, here's why. This, the scattering of the seed is the way that the kingdom is going to be built. And this has to do with the scattering that Bob is saying that's happening 
where no longer is the kingdom going to be centered in Jerusalem, but it's going to go out to the nations. And so what's interesting in the new covenant is that this kingdom of God is being built imperceptibly by man. There's no building project where there's a big erect building going up in Jerusalem and saying, well, there's the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God is being built through the proclamation of the gospel. It's, it's not uh, the Vatican either, is it? Exactly. It's not the Vatican, right? It's no. not in Jerusalem, as Bob is saying. And so that's what, remember, Jesus said this, a time is coming, remember in John 4, well, they'll neither worship at Gerizim or in Jerusalem, but everyone who's going to worship them will worship in spirit and truth. It's, that's because yeah. it's going to be scattered. Here, here's another point, because I had an email interaction with one of my readers this week. Please think about this. Christendom is not Christianity. I want to say that twice. Christendom is not Christianity. And in the process of history, in church history, the church got really off base. And we can know that because of Scripture. And they thought that somehow the Great Commission means We take over the nations, put our people in charge, and command everybody to be a Christian. You cannot possibly find that in the Great Commission or anywhere. Now, I debated a guy. on. He actually wrote me a letter before the Internet. I wrote to Gary North, who's a Reconstructionist, rebuking his theology. And he wrote me back a letter. He said, maybe once a year I get a letter from somebody like you. And he says, I don't have time to swat every fly that comes through my window. He was claiming that Matthew teaches the church is supposed to take over the government and run it in the name of Christ. Well, that's been done before. How well has it worked? If what happens is Christ ends up being blamed for what he never ordained. The scattering means that Christians are everywhere on the scene of history throughout the nations preaching, gathering, praying. By the way, pray for Kenya. I have a dear Christian preacher friend in Kenya and they had flooding there and it wiped away a lot of their what they had, and I did tell him that we would pray for them, and it shows me there's Christians everywhere, and Christendom is not Christianity, and big Christian corporations are whatever they are, but they're corporations. They're not Christian. They may do some good. They may do some bad. See, this is part of God's allowing history to go on. But if we do not get biblical categories in our minds, we won't know what's good and evil. So we might think, well, it's good if somebody took over the government of so-and-so and commanded everybody to be Christian. We might think that's good, but does God say it's good? It's, it's horrible. Uh, it's not God's will for us to create binding liturgies to make the church more like the synagogue. I was looking up those Greek words, liturgio. I looked up three Greek words where we get our word liturgy. And this would mean a order of priestly 
duties and services. And so people want to recreate what the high priest had in Jerusalem. And they have a reset. The Roman Catholic Church is is prime case of doing that. There's no liturgy that's demanded. Don't look so shocked. We're supposed to fellowship around the apostles teaching, breaking bread and prayer, and baptize people who come to Christ and preach the gospel and care for the flock. There's no prescribed liturgy. If we needed one, Eric, you said something the last I heard you when I heard you preaching really struck me as significant. Remember when Jesus said, if it were not so, I would have told you. Isn't that profound in regard to the sufficiency of scripture that God told us what we need so we know what to do and what's right and wrong? We have everything we need. If we needed a prescribed liturgy with robed hierophants <laughs> making proclamations, do this, kneel, do this, follow this, do that. If it were so, I would have told you. He did not tell us. Why? Because that stops the gospel. It stops the urgency to be scattered. I, I see this going on, and I just think, what? 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 Why are you doing this? Incense and smells and bells, and this has to happen, and that has to happen, and then this has to happen. Where did Jesus Christ tell us that's the way it has to be? Nowhere. Nowhere. This is an affront to God. It's not demanded. And the best you can hope for is saying we have liberty. Okay? So let's say the pastor wears a big robe with tassels or something. The best you can say, well, I have liberty to do this. Make your argument, maybe I would be a little concerned. You know what I mean? They lengthen their phylacteries and they love places of honor in the workplace. It might be even hard to say you got Christian liberty. But that's the best you can say, but you cannot say God ordained it. Why was Jerusalem not the world headquarters? Because if it was, it would not have spread to all the nations. That's what we learn. Oh, yes, brother. Right. I just want to say uh, another side note about the liturgy, although I come from a liturgical background, um, is that it teaches you not to think. And uh, it just instructs you, and you, you kind of go over it like a Hail Mary or whatever it may be, and you don't think it through, really. And that's, that's a horrible thing. That's why I'm against it, by the way. Yeah. Even if, and it's not always true. I don't believe any of the creeds in church history are binding on the church unless they were written by an apostle or one of their associates who actually saw Christ. I'm not saying no creed has the truth, but no creed is binding just because it's a creed. Because if it was, that meant whoever wrote it had the same status as Paul and Peter and James and Isaiah and everybody else. Now, I was at a funeral where they recited a creed. I think they call it the Apostles' Creed. 
Well, it said that Jesus descended into hell. So, and I, I, it's a good thing there isn't a liturgy because I don't know what would happen to me. I hate it. So one of the reasons I left the church when I was a teenager, I couldn't stand it. Especially when the ordained ministers say they don't even believe in miracles or the resurrection. But is it biblical that Jesus descended into hell when he died? Eric, do you want to address that, please? Yeah, that comes from 1 Peter 3, where he makes this descent. But it's interesting, the term for descent is actually used for ascent and his ascension. And where Jesus actually goes is it's a proclamation to the spirits who are in prison that he has victory over them through the cross. And so there's no biblical warrant that Jesus, after his death, had to go down into hell and finish the atonement. In fact, that would violate scripture where Jesus is on the cross. He dies. He says, it is finished. Well, a lot of the word of faith teachers, for example, they'll say Jesus actually had to finish his work of atonement by descending into hell. Well, then that would contradict the scripture. So no, it was finished. The word at the of cross. faith people talk about that. Exactly. That right. Jesus actually lost his divinity. Right. And had to go to hell to be born again. Right. And, and that he had to fight with the devil Man on man on man. Yeah. Jesus no longer God. Now I've written about that several times, calling it blasphemy. Right. Because deity doesn't come and go, it is. Amen. And then I gotta quick say this. Diane was watching and they interviewed a guy, Jesse Duplantis, who wants fifty four was it fifty four million? Did anybody hear about that? He needs to fly all over the world to spread his heresy. So people are giving this guy money. The guy's a heretic. I wrote about him 20 years ago. I think CIC issue 54, if I remember right, Visiting Heaven and Hell. Jesse Duplantis, who needs $54 million, wrote a book where he went into heaven, and when he talked to David and the people in heaven, they're apologizing for the Bible. David wrote some of the negative psalms when he had a bad day. And Jesse Duplantis, the heretic, says he saw Jesus and he saw the Father, but he didn't see the Holy Spirit. So he said, where's the Holy Spirit? Oh, he's not here because he's on earth. So, well, isn't that a doctrine of God? Omnipresence is gone. It's crazy. This is not even junior high level theology. And this guy's already got so many jet planes. And that whole heresy is based on the born again Jesus who went to hell. So I'm sitting at a funeral and they're citing this thing. I don't want to dishonor anybody, but Jesus did not go to hell. That creed is not binding because it wasn't inspired by the Holy Spirit. We have to go back to the Bible to see what God's will is. Does that make sense? The moral will of God is revealed in the Bible. The providential will happens as history unfolds. What does he want us to do? To obey his moral will by his grace and preach the gospel to all people. The greatest privilege we could ever have is to be those who preach the gospel wherever we are on the scene of history. Does that make sense? Lonnie, and then we got to close in prayer. Well, uh, I was just going to ask you, what, what again 
Was that creed? Is that the Apostles' Creed That's where they, what they say? called it. They called it that. The Apostles' Creed, but it didn't come from the Apostles. Okay. Honestly, I, now that I'm old, I think I'll just keep getting in more trouble. <laughs> but there's no liturgy that we have to follow. Why do we keep creating these things? Are pastors so lazy they don't want to study? I don't know the heart or the motives. Only God does. But somebody gives me a liturgy, and I do this, and I do this, and I do this, and I wear my robe, and that's, a, that's what God intended for Christian ministry? Why don't we preach? Again, I'm not saying that nobody in a robe ever preached the gospel. I'm sure that some have. And... Uh, Besides that, I, I would not show up to church without my wife dressing me because I would look awful. So if I look okay, it's only because Diane knows how to dress a man to send him to church. <laughs> Could you close in prayer, Brother Eric? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have scattered the gospel through the nations. And we thank you, Lord, that you are coming again to bring your kingdom. We do pray for many to repent and believe. And we thank you for restoring our teacher, Bob, and we pray for continued blessings upon him and protection. And we do pray again for the continued healing of Diane and uh, Bob's mother. And we lift up our church for all those who are hurting, Lord. We pray for healing upon them. We pray, Lord, that the word would continue to go forth and that our worship would be pleasing to you later today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. And we have the joy of hearing Eric later. <laughs>